The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So we've been in this Thursday night class for the last few weeks talking about um, a little bit about the Four Noble Truths, the First Noble Truth, and last week I started talking about the Second Noble Truth, the just as a brief overview, the Four Noble Truths are the kind of the core teachings of the Buddha. Um, he expressed his understanding when he came to his, um, un- came to his awakening. He, he expressed his understanding in terms of these four truths. The truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of cessation of suffering, and the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering. It's not surprising that the formulation of his teaching was framed around suffering because that was the question he had. You know, what is the suffering and how can we be free of it? So it sometimes seems, I think, when we, um, you know, when people hear about Buddhism, I just read a review, I was reading a review of a book and somebody said something like, you know, um, you Buddhists, all you think is that life is horrible and get over it. You know, that's what, that's what the teaching is. That's, so that, you know, from the outside, that can kind of be what people think. But the, um, the teaching is actually that it's possible to be free of struggle, of suffering. And suffering, a broad word for um, what the Buddha was looking at, which is the complete range of ways that we struggle in our lives, from feelings of dis-ease, uh, of unease, of dissatisfaction, of just a feeling that things are slightly off, to more of a sense of struggle, of frustration, to a stronger sense of stronger senses of um, things are not right, of feelings of injustice in the world, feelings that um, that that everything is overwhelming, feelings around diagnosis of illness, of loss of family. It's a very broad range, what the Buddha was looking at. And he understood in his awakening experience the possibility of of freedom from that suffering. Not from freedom from the experience of loss or of illness, but from the the freedom from the mind being unhappy about it. The, it, it the, the freedom that the Buddha is pointing to is a freedom of mind, an ease with our experience, no matter what the conditions are in our lives. So it's a, it's a, it's a very deep kind of peace that the Buddha points to, the possibility of ease within the conditions of our lives. And that doesn't mean that we're just supposed to sit back and not try to change any conditions, it doesn't mean that we um, just allow injustice to continue, but it does mean that we um, find ways that that we can find ways to be at ease in navigating our movement through the world, and if we are acting against injustice in the world or or we are dealing with great pain, uh, great loss, that their heart can be open. Our heart cannot be contracted and tight and screaming in agony against that. The the heart, the mind can be, if not um, happy with loss, which is not generally what happens, it can be balanced. It can be at ease, peaceful, around loss, peaceful around change, peaceful around injustice, even as we act to change injustice. So the um, part of the understanding in the Buddha's awakening was that this unease, this dissatisfaction, this feeling that things are off in our lives is not a random event. It's not simply, you know, that we walk through life and, you know, these little bombs go off, you know, around us and that we just kind of haphazardly wander through life getting 
these, uh, this, this uh, experience of dissatisfaction, of struggle, of suffering. He says that it has a cause. And because he's pointing to this ease in the mind that's possible, the cause that he points to is in the mind. The cause of our struggles he points to as basically wanting things to be different, wanting things to be other than they are. So in a simple way I'll describe you know, this, this wanting and, and how this kind of traps us. You know, we want things to be a certain way. And over and over again, um, in wanting things to be a certain way, we've taken action and we've perhaps many times we've gotten what we wanted. Either, you know, we, we wanted some particular sense pleasure and we, you know, went out and constructed that for ourselves and then we had these moments of, of happiness. We had sense of, yeah, things feel good here. Or we wanted to be seen as someone who was really um, um, competent and we worked really hard and um, gained some competence and then proved ourselves and got praise. I mean, actually what we wanted was not so much to be competent, was to be praised as being competent. <laughs> so we, um, you know, we have these, these wishes, these desires in our, in our navigating our lives. And what seems to happen for us is that when we get what we want, when we have one of these desires and we get what we want, we, we're happy. It feels good. It feels good to get what we want. And this is completely normal and natural for this to happen. And we get what we want. We have this sense of, of gratification, of satisfaction, a sense that things are right, things are good. And because that happens to us over and over again, when we want something and we get it, we want something, we get it, we're happy. We, we um, have this, we basically end up kind of on a cycle. We begin to believe, actually, that the way to happiness is to have what we want. You know, that that's, that's what we, we understand by having this happen to us over and over again. We see that when we have what we want, we feel good. It feels better. If we don't have what we want, we sit there in this feeling of lack. We sit there in this feeling that things don't feel good. If we don't have what we want, we're frustrated because we don't have the thing. We don't have the, either the pleasantness of the thing or the, the sense of identity that comes from whatever, the being praised or whatever. So we don't, we don't have that thing. But also we're sitting in this feeling of something's wrong, something's off, this feeling of lack itself. Feeling, the feeling of wanting something already feels off. The feeling of wanting something immediately as it comes already produces a feeling of lack. And it doesn't feel right. Something feels off about that. And because we've seen that um, sense of lack go away when we get the thing, when we get what we want, we think that that is the way to happiness. We think that the way to end our dissatisfaction is to satisfy our desires. And we think that's the only way that we can end our dissatisfaction. So we believe, because we've seen this happen over and over again, we begin to believe this cycle of, you know, there's this wanting that happens, and then when we do things and we get what we want, there's that, there's that having. We have the thing that we want. There's this moment of happiness, of, of yeah, this is good. Things feel good. And then, you know, things are impermanent, things change, and that particular happiness fades. And then, again, another wanting springs up. And be, again, because we've seen the having satisfy us in the past, we go out and try to get that thing. And it ends up, what seems to happen to us, we end up on this cycle of wanting. That because we get what we want, and we are satisfied from that, when that kind of happiness fades, we end up in a place of wanting to want. 
because the only way we know to find happiness is to find something to want and to have it. So we, we get caught on a cycle of wanting. And this is the very thing that the Buddha pointed to as being the difficulty, one of the difficulties around wanting. That it, it, it traps us into believing that we have to want something and then get it in order to be happy. And when we look at the wanting itself, we see that that wanting itself is already a feeling of offness. Already it feels like something's... There's already some dukkha. There's already some suffering, some struggle, some unease, some dissatisfaction in the wanting itself. There's a poem that I like that kind of um, conveys this being in this cycle of endlessly wanting. And it, it, it talks about it in terms of perpetually being driven to leap, leap into. And I like this sense of leaping because it is, it feels very much like we leap into our cravings. So this is a poem by Rainer Maria Rilke from his fifth Duino elegy. But tell me, who are they, these wanderers, even more transient than we ourselves, who from their earliest days are savagely wrung out by a never-satisfied will? For whose sake? Yet it wrings them, bends them, twists them, swings them and flings them, and catches them again, and falling as if through oiled, slippery air, they land on the threadbare carpet, worn constantly thinner by their perpetual leaping. This is this sense of being driven, in fact. I mean, it's like we're constantly leaping into the next craving, the next craving, the next craving. And, and as soon as we land, there's another craving. We leap again, we leap again. And it's as if we're driven to do this. It's not, it's not something that we actually are deciding to do. It's, just, it's been so conditioned that we're just continually leaping over and over again. So the Buddha talked about this cycle of ignorance, a cycle of wanting in um, a couple of different ways. I mean, one of the, the, the main ways he talked about this this cycle of ignorance was through, cycle of wanting was through um, it's being fueled by ignorance. That there's a, a way that ignorance, and it has a spe- specific meaning for ignorance. I'll, t- I'll talk about that in a minute. That ignorance actually is the root underpinning to why craving comes about in the first place. And that he, he taught that this ignorance, this misunderstanding, actually, it's, it's kind of this ignorance kind of framed as misunderstanding. It underlies all of our struggles. And so while this craving is the direct cause, the craving, this wanting things to be other than they are, is the direct cause of our struggles. Because we want something, and we, if we get it, we're happy for a moment, but then we end up just wanting something else. And if we stop and turn and look at the wanting, we realize that the wanting itself doesn't feel very good. And we begin to um, we begin to see that that wanting is actually suffering itself. So this ignorance that the Buddha pointed to, this ignorance... Um, so the, 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 the craving is the direct cause in the moment but the ignorance is kind of underlying what, how we're oriented in our world the ignorance, this misunderstandings of how happiness is found and what reality actually is we have, we have misperceptions about what's actually going on here and those misperceptions aren't simple like ignorance we often think of as not knowing something. But it's more active than that. The ignorance that's happening 
in our minds that's fueling this craving, that's fueling this wanting, is more active. It's, it's active misunderstanding of what's going on in our lives, active misunderstanding around how we can be happy. And in those misunderstandings, we behave in ways that the Buddha actually said, you know, he looked out and he saw people behaving in ways, trying to be happy, but doing exactly the opposite thing doing things that would take them directly into unhappiness. This, this is pointing to that, that ignorance, this, this sense of, yes, we're all trying to be happy. I mean, everything that we do at some level is trying to point us in the direction of happiness. It's trying what, what we do in general, we think is going to t- bring us some kind of well-being. And we are misunderstanding how well-being is actually to be found. So, what the Buddha meant by this misunderstanding, this ignorance, the key, a key definition, a kind of formal definition of this misunderstanding or ignorance is not understanding suffering, essentially not understanding the Four Noble Truths, not understanding the truth of suffering, that, that there is a cause to suffering, that there's a possibility of freedom from suffering, and that there's a path leading to freedom from suffering. That's that one of the key kind of classic definitions of this ignorance, ignorance of the Four Noble Truths and how they operate. But I'm going to ex- explore this ignorance from another perspective, because the Buddha actually had many different ways to come into this Um, exploration of ignorance. And the way I'd like to explore it is as views that we hold, beliefs that we have around ourselves and around um, what will make us happy. And that we hold these beliefs almost without really knowing that we're holding them because they're so ingrained in our culture in our, the way that we were raised, and some ingrained in just being human, in a way, kind of in how we all are as humans. It's not just our culture that has this. It's, it's, it's human to have this pattern around wanting, having, and having a happiness of that having, and then thinking that that's the way to happiness. That's a human misunderstanding. So I'd like to talk about two main misunderstandings. And one of them is around um, this question of having what I want will make me happy. This question of sense pleasure. Having sense pleasure will make me happy. So that's, that's a view that we have. We don't even question it often. We don't even think about... I mean, it's just so natural. Of course, sense pleasure makes me happy. And it does. I'm not saying that it doesn't. I mean, I talked about this on Monday night at length. So I'm not going to go into that great detail here. Um, but there's a, there is a kind of happiness that comes from having what we want. There's a kind of a happiness that comes from being surrounded by pleasant things. There's a happiness that comes from being able to put aside things that are unpleasant. That happiness is fairly transient. The happiness of having things that we want, it's fairly transient. And from the Buddhist perspective, it's really unreliable. In his exploration of where is suffering found and how can happiness be found, he looked at this question of sense pleasure and said, you know, this is not the kind of happiness I'm looking for because it doesn't last very long. It just fades. And then there's that feeling of lack that springs up when I want something else, and that's already suffering again. How can I, how can I let go of that, too? How can there not even be that sense of lack when I want something? So he, he explored this and found, you know, sense pleasure is pretty unreliable. It's not a good place. It's not a good foundation for wit- on which to rest a deeper kind of happiness, a truer kind of happiness. So the mistaken notion that we have around happiness or, or sense pleasure is that, um, that that's pretty much as good as it gets. You know, that having what we want 
is as good of a happiness as it gets. And the best kind of happiness is going to be if you can maneuver your life to um, have just as the one kind of happiness is fading, that there's another one waiting in the wings to be there so that we can, you know, as that one's fading, we've got another one right on on the way up. And if we could arrange our lives such that we had just continual... Uh, not seeing the real fading of one happiness before the next one is coming in, that would be what we thought would be successful life, and that would be as good as it gets. There's there's a couple of things that that I think the Buddha notices about this. One is that takes a lot of work. Another Rilke quote, I don't have it right here, so I'll have to paraphrase it. Something along the lines of, and we always looking outward. We arrange things. It breaks down. We rearrange it, then break down ourselves. This continual rearranging is so much effort. And it, it, again, it contains that, that wanting, that inherent already sense of lack that's present. So that even, even as we are focused outward on the happiness there that's going to come, there's this inner feeling of lack that's driving us to continually arrange, 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 arrange. So we think this is as good as it gets, and this is a mistaken idea. It's not as good as it gets. The Buddha pointed to the fact that we could actually notice, notice this feeling of wanting. Notice that quality. Notice the feeling of lack that comes with it. And here the um, uh, impermanence works for us. If we just hang out with that feeling of wanting, we'll see it go away. We'll see it disappear. And in that seeing it disappear, we'll see that We don't have to have something in order to have a feeling of dissatisfaction go away. That the the feeling of dissatisfaction can go away when the wanting goes away. The wanting is the dissatisfaction. And the wanting can fade. So this is an exploration for us. And there's also another, the mistake, the mis- so that's a kind of happiness that is not relying on having. And it's, it's not something that we would necessarily think of. Well, maybe if I just hang out and wait, maybe that wanting will fade. You know, that's not something we would necessarily think of. There are also other kinds of happiness that are deeper kinds of happiness, other kinds of pleasure that are more reliable than the happiness of arranging and having and arranging and having. The happiness of a calm mind that comes through cultivating a peaceful mind, through cultivating meditation, through settling the mind of thought and desire and agitation. That mind that, when settled, has a sense of peacefulness and ease and that can, that can feel even blissful at times. That is a much a deeper, more reliable kind of happiness. It's, it's still conditioned. It's still constructed. And then there's the happiness of, of insight, of recognizing very deeply that the way it is, what is already happening, is already happening. And the, the insight of, it's okay that this is like this, that it's like this. Now, it may be that we take some action for the next moment, but this moment is already here. This moment is already happening. There's no point in fighting against this moment already. To accept this moment doesn't mean that we don't step forward into the next moment taking an action out of compassion, out of kindness, out of care for ourselves or others. But we don't have to 
be at war with what's happening in this moment. And in fact, if we're not at war with what's happening in this moment, we can more skillfully, we can have a more skillful response with which to respond to our own suffering, the suffering of others, injustice. So this view of what brings happiness is one of these mistaken ideas, one of these notions. And we can begin to see through exploring with mindfulness how having what we want, this endlessly, endless rearranging, actually isn't very satisfying. It's not a great way to happiness. It's not as good as it gets. Another view that we operate from, that we work from, is a view of identity, a view of self, of who we are, of what we need, a sense that we need to, because there is a me here, that there's someone to defend, someone to protect, the things that we have to get, things that we need to defend that are mine, things that we need to uh, make sure that stay ours. So this notion of self, this notion that I am, this is a little bit harder one to see, and I'm not going to speak long about it. I'm just going to kind of drop it in the room and explore a little bit what uh, the mistaken idea here is. What's going on, and this is, this is again what I said earlier, there's this mistaking what's actually happening here, what mistaking reality. Um, what's going on inside of us, what's going on in every one of us is a process of things unfolding, causes and conditions unfolding. We, we experience, um, you know, the, the whole process of wanting, for instance, is conditioned. We, we've lived that way so long that it's just well-oiled pathway that we head down this. And, and as soon as, and one of the ways that we can begin to see this sense of um, um, mistaken notion of identity is when we recognize, oh yeah, here's this wanting, here's this clinging. This isn't so helpful. Let me try to not do that. Not so easy. You know, one of the key ways the Buddha explored this notion of mistaken idea that there's someone here running the show is that he said, if there was someone here running the show, there would be some control. And there is some level of control, but there is not absolute control. So, for instance, we see ourselves wanting. We see this pattern that we're in that we... um, or, or ways that we engage, you know. Particular person says something to us and we always get angry or frustrated. And it's like, it's like they push the button and there it is. You know, it pops out. It's like, yeah, I'd choose not to get angry if I couldn't, but they pushed that button. You know, so, so it's like we, we, um, we have the sense that there's some lack of control going on in our experience. And when we start to see how we suffer, how we struggle, you know, there's this, this sense of, well, gosh, I, sh- you know, I should just stop doing that. But we can't stop doing it because it's so conditioned. And what we are is a set of processes, a set of actions that come out of habitual tendencies. It's kind of like... Um, and we're just a, we're, we're a process unfolding. We're just a set of processes unfolding. It's kind of like a tree. I've used this example recently, but you know, it's like there's an acorn. There's an acorn, and we plant the acorn. And we water it, and it begins to grow. You know, it maybe sprouts and, and sends out the roots, and then maybe a little acorn uh, seedling comes up. And if it's in a good situation, it's not going to get mown over or eaten by a deer or something, you know. It begins to grow. It gets a little bit bigger. Uh, if it doesn't get disease, if it's healthy, it's got enough water, enough sun, it will continue to grow. All kinds of conditions coming into play to make this acorn turn into a tree. 
It's a process that's unfolding, a natural process. It's a process of nature unfolding. There's no, no one doing that. It's just happening. It's just a process of nature. And likewise, what we consider me is a process of nature. And another process of nature is that we, after the fact, co-opt this process and say, that's me. This, this again, it's a mistaken idea. It's not, that the, it's not that there's nothing happening. It's not that there's no process unfolding. It's that, the, that there is somebody inside who is doing the choosing, who is doing the wanting, who is doing whatever we do. There's, there's, there's no one in there doing that. It's just causes and conditions unfolding. Something happens. We've been sitting at our computer for a long time. Thirst arises. That conditions the desire to get a drink. That conditions the desire to stand up. It's just an unfolding. We, we think in that process, I chose to do this. That I choosing is kind of assigned after the fact of um, that, that intention arising of that thirst conditioning the, the desire to fulfill that, that wish. The, the, the thirst arises and the need to, to, to get a drink. That conditions that. And after the fact, we think, oh, I decided to go get a drink of water. And this actually, there's a recent study that I um, heard about, it's relatively recent, I, I, I can't remember the, the reference, but um, maybe I'll try to find it for next week, um, that they did this study where they were looking at the brain I- I- electrodes, you know, they, were, they had electrodes on people's heads and they were looking at um, um, making a choice, a simple choice, like push button A or button B. And they were, you know, mapping everything that was going on in their minds around making a decision. And in that, um, uh, all of that data that they got out of the brain, they could tell, so, and they, they asked the person to, 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 to kind of indicate when they knew which button they were going to push to say, yes, I know which button I'm going to push now. They asked the person to indicate that. And they, the, the, the researchers could tell substantially before the person reported what they, button they were going to push. The researchers knew, based on what was happening in the brain, what button they were going to push. It was like the, the researchers could see, based on how the, the electrodes were firing, they already knew which button they were going to push, which button the people in the experiment were going to push before the people in the experiment knew what button they were going to push. So this is, this is, you know, this is this kind of process unfolding. And after the fact, we attribute this sense of self. So out of this delusion of self, out of this idea that I am here, all kinds of beliefs and wantings arise. You know, I need this. I need to be seen as someone who is um, successful, who's good at doing things. Uh, I need to have things. I need to get rid of things. The sense of self that we have is threatened, and that that can when we ha- that sense of self is threatened. There's all kinds of things that we um, do to get out of that. So these views that we have, these br- this briefest uh, description of these kinds of views that we, we um, live our lives with, these mistaken ideas, we are aware of what's going on, or we can be aware of what's going on, but we're kind of living our lives through this filter of distortion, 
through this filter of the happiness comes from having what I want, through this filter of I need this, I need that, this is who I am, this is, what I, this is the recognition I need. So we are being led through this mistaken understanding to look for happiness in places that it we may get a little bit of happiness from it, but it's, it's not a very reliable happiness that comes based out of these mistaken views. Essentially, out of mistaken views, a kind of mistaken happiness comes. So how is it possible, you know, given that I said there's nobody in here, you know, how is it even possible to change If all we are is just, you know, an unfolding pattern of causes and conditions, how is it even possible for change to happen? Well, partly, um, I think we we can take some... We can be grateful for the fact that our... The way we're constructed as human beings is that we basically want to be happy. We want to have a sense of well-being... One book that I read by one neuropsychologist said there's like this inner drive towards homeostasis, an inner biological mechanism that takes us towards what would be experienced as well-being. So there's that kind of inner process that wants to take us in the direction of well-being. And these mistaken ideas essentially get layered on top of that inner drive, that inner direction towards well-being, these mistaken notions get layered on top of that. And then the way we look for well-being then gets filtered through those mistaken ideas. So we are looking for happiness. We, we're very short-sighted. You know, we, we, um, we look for happiness in the having. We look for happiness in the having senses of identity that are... Um, that make us feel powerful or make us feel successful. So the, this um, inner drive towards well-being or this inner movement towards well-being is kind of co-opted by these misunderstandings. And we, we start looking for happiness in, in wrong ways. And so... Um, but fortunately, we do have this inner drive, this inner movement towards well-being. And the, the great thing here is that causes and conditions have led you to come and listen to the Dharma. And, um, you know, when you hear certain information, you get certain kinds of information, it enters into your mind. And maybe even just hearing that just having con- ar- continually arranging your world um, isn't the best happiness that's possible might sort of lead you to kind of see things a little differently. So there's conditions always coming, f- filtering into our, into our um, stream of causes and conditions. And the wisdom, the teachings that you're listening to are some of those conditions that are filtering in. The teachings on mindfulness are some of those conditions that are filtering in. We hear the, the teaching that it's helpful to be mindful. The Buddha was brilliant. You know, this quality of mindfulness is a simple, ordinary, everyday quality. It's just this natural quality that exists in our in our. And being human, this ability to know what's happening while it's happening is a perfectly ordinary quality. We don't usually notice it. We don't usually think of it as something valuable to pay attention to in and of itself because we're more focused outwards. We're focused on the things that we become mindful of. So the Buddha said, hey, you know, adding some conditions to our um, unfolding processes here, The Buddha said, this is really useful. I've seen this help me out a lot. Pay attention to mindfulness. Cultivate that quality. And so we hear that, and that enters in, and we may start recognizing moments of mindfulness. This week I'm leading a retreat where we're really looking at bringing moments of mindfulness into our day. Bringing 
the ability to recognize when we become mindful. So this wisdom of understanding that there's some ignorance at work and joining that with mindfulness are two conditions that come into our experience and begin to alter our understanding about where well-being is found. As we hear these teachings and engage with mindfulness, we start to see the dissatisfying nature of having what we want. That it just ends up cycling us into this endless leaping, perpetual leaping. We see that. We start to see that. We see with mindfulness when we are experiencing difficult emotions, when we, we get angry at somebody, we see with mindfulness that the perspective we usually have is that, you know, we're outward, focused outward looking at, and how's this, you know, we're, we're, we're focused outwards on how's this going to impact the other person. I'm angry at them. I hope it makes them really miserable that I'm angry at them. So we're focused outwards, and we're not looking at the fact that this anger is burning us up inwardly. As we bring mindfulness to that, we see the suffering of our the ways that we've been engaging, it becomes really clear to us. And as the mind starts to recognize its own contribution to its, to, to its suffering, as, as the mindfulness reveals, yeah, this anger is suffering. You know, I, I spent a couple of years being really um, working with anger a lot. And initially in that process as I was just beginning I began to I saw how I believed that the anger was going to somehow make the other person miserable and yet I didn't I wasn't initially seeing just how miserable it was making me because I was so focused outward then with mindfulness I began to see wow this anger is making me miserable and thank goodness we have this capacity this kind of inward direction towards well-being, when the mind understands, yeah, this state, this being of anger, all kinds of ways we get into struggles and suffering, makes me feel miserable. It's not helpful. The mind itself begins to find a way to navigate towards well-being by letting go of those difficult states. It's, it's a slow process. It's not one that happens, like, you know, right away. But the, the practice of mindfulness, the willingness to turn to face the struggle, the wanting, the challenges, basically begins to give our minds an education in where and how it is contributing to the whole... Um, way that we struggle, the way we, that we suffer. So as, we get, as the mind gets that education, it begins to understand itself how to navigate its way out. It's not something we actually do. Again, we can't choose it. We can't say, yes, I want to let go of this. If, if I could have in that time, I would have said, yeah. And when I realized that this anger was burning me up, if I had realized how that I could let it go, it's like, yeah, anger, go away. I couldn't do that. So a lot of our practice is in this understanding suffering. This is the first noble truth. We understand suffering. We see the wanting. That's the, the underpinning of that. We understand how both this, the, the result of wanting, some of those difficult struggling states, and the wanting itself are not very reliable ways towards happiness. And we begin to experience a deeper kind of happiness, one that comes not from having what we want, but from letting go. And we can count on in a way that this, through, through mindfulness and wisdom, this, the, the teaching that the Buddha offers, these two together will allow us to come down to the level where that 
natural movement towards well-being, that kind of biological movement towards well-being, can operate in the most skillful way without being covered over and misdirected by these mistaken views. So, comments, questions, thoughts, ideas? There must be something in there that you disagreed with or, or, or got something, anything. I'm happy to be challenged. Challenge me. Yeah. Um. Well, it, it's very, it's it's not something I'm grasping um, tacitly very much, but I'm. I had an interesting experience this morning as I was driving to work. There was this one area where the traffic it just seems to congest, and I'm noticing lately that subconsciously I get a trigger of feeling hunger. And this morning. The traffic was there, and and it's all subconscious. I'm not like really feeling upset about the or, or or rushed, but the traffic was there, and I didn't have that ding of hunger because I've been practicing noticing that. Yes, and I thought, huh, and then and I also was practicing a little bit of what's pleasant and what's unpleasant. And I was a bit confused because I thought, well, this isn't pleasant and it's not unpleasant. It's just pleasant and unpleasant is the same as what I was thinking. And I was thinking it's the wanting some, it, the traffic to change that's the problem. But Yes. And I just thought, well, <laughs> it's a very strange thing to notice. So. <laughs> If that's what you're talking about, then I'm getting it on a tacit sense, but my brain can't figure it out. Yes, yes, yes. I understand completely what you're saying. Yes, you are getting it it kind of in... Because you're starting to pay attention, so, you know, attending this week to where you're struggling, where you're suffering, you saw, oh my gosh, when this traffic is unpleasant, the hunger pops up. You just saw that happen a few times. And the mind began to understand the connection there. I mean, you didn't have to actually understand it consciously. The mind began to understand that. And this is very much what I was talking about, that as the mind begins to understand that, it begins to see how to let go of it. So it, it did let go of that, of that hunger, and it let go of seeing that traffic as being a problem. It let go of the wanting around it, because it began to recognize this is not helpful. You know, so again, it's the mindfulness. And we, we've been talking about during the course of the week, some very simple things, you know, be mindful, notice when there's, um, you know, when there's things that, that pop up that lead to suffering, be interested, you know, be curious. And that very interest and curiosity puts the mind in a more um, a balanced place. It, it puts it into a place where it can observe and not be caught by. So, yes, it, you are, you're actually starting to understand it in the, the non-conceptual way. And you probably couldn't articulate it so much in this way. Um, but, you, but you're right. That's very much the, the terrain that I'm talking about. Yes, the, the mind itself being mindful and exploring where we struggle. So the Buddha says, understand suffering. You know, bring mindfulness to struggle. And a lot of what we're talking about this week is just learning how to be mindful in the midst of of our day so that we can be mindful of being in traffic jams and noticing what happens. So you're, you're being mindful and um, the mind is starting to notice that it is getting itself into states of suffering. Your mind knows that this is not helpful. And so your mind is starting to reconstruct things, to, to, to redo things. Again, this is not self. <laughs> 
I was going to say that too. It was. I also noticed that it was as if there was some some consciousness or, or mind trying to make sense of it or understand it, but it wasn't possible because, you know, I'm not at that. I, I, I've, I'm sort of noticing I'm resisting trying to understand that there's no self there, but uh, yeah, that's some sort of tacit thing. I, like I'm getting it on one level and... Yeah, and, and, and that this is actually how it unfolds in a, in a spiral kind of this way. You know, that um, this... Um, the way that I talk about things and put things out there, um, it, it's the 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 Dharma talks give you some level of what you can connect with and understand, and then you work from that, and then you come back to a Dharma talk after you've had a little understanding. You come back and hear the teaching again, and it's like you understand it at a new level. You begin to understand it at a new level. And so, you know, I had some insights really early on in my practice, the first couple months of my practice, that as I began to look back at them, I can now see them through the framework of what the Buddha taught. But I didn't understand them from that perspective at the time. I just knew, wow, I just saw the mind almost get angry. And it didn't get angry because it, it knew that was not going to feel good. You know, that's what I knew in that moment. But in retrospect, I can, I can talk about it and understand it from the, the way that the Buddha explains things. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you don't have to try to understand it, actually. Just notice your experience. And then as you keep listening to the various talks, certain things will start to, you know, like you'll have a framework to hang things on through, through your direct experience. It'll be like, oh yeah, now I under I I saw that. I, I've seen so many times in in Dharma talks. It's like, you know, I one I went on one retreat. I had this insight. I can't even remember what it was at one point, but it was like a mind blowing insight. So I thought at the time, and I was like, wow, that is so amazing. They should tell us about that. They should tell us about that. It is so amazing. They need to be teaching us that. And then the next three Dharma talks, I heard it. It's so it, certain kind of insights come, and, and we may have been hearing them, but not hearing them, because there's nothing for them to kind of land in until the mindfulness opens up that terrain, and then, oh, and then we understand it. And so that the understanding from the intellectual level then supports us to keep going. But you don't have to, you know, don't don't have to struggle to to get not self. Don't, don't, don't go there. <laughs> I, sometimes when I talk about not-self, I say, don't believe it. You know, just, just notice your experience. You know, just notice what's happening. So thank you for that. And now it's 9 o'clock, so we need to stop. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>